hope we can all hear Romans chapter 12, 10 today, that we need to love each other and honor each other over ourselves. Uh, my name is Colin. If you want to go ahead and open your Bible to Ecclesiastes chapter 5, uh, that's going to be our text for today. Uh, if you haven't been with us the past few weeks, we've been journeying through uh, what some would call a strange book in the Old Testament called Ecclesiastes. Uh, and the overarching theme, one of the main themes of this Old Testament book that's considered wisdom literature, uh, trying to teach its reader some sort of wisdom. And the author says over and over and over again that everything under the sun is meaningless. Which is like a weird way to open the Bible, right? Like you open the Bible, going to read something today, going to make me feel warm and fuzzy inside, and I hear that everything in life under the sun is meaningless. That uh, the book of Ecclesiastes is uh, considered to be written from Solomon's perspective, right? From the wisdom of King Solomon, who most of us know is one of the wisest kings ever. And so he says, hey, I went to the end of wisdom, and it was vanity. It was empty. I went and sought out the end of riches, and it was vanity. I sought out the end of power. I sought out the end of influence, of legacy. He says, see all the things that I built, all the systems, all the structures that are going to long outlive me. And he says, they're still going to forget about me. It's meaningless. He says there are people sitting in positions of power that are supposed to be exacting justice, and they're exacting oppression. We did it two weeks ago. The book of Ecclesiastes tells us that looking for hope in systems is meaningless. Right? He says, hey, I sought the end of these things, and everything under the sun with an earthly perspective is empty. It's a vapor. Today, we're going to be in chapter 5, and the author is going to talk to us about worship. And I pray that we will have uh, ears to hear and hearts to receive what the Lord has to say to us today from the book of Ecclesiastes. Let's uh, pray together and ask the Lord to speak. Father, we are just grateful to come to you. We are grateful for the opportunity that we even have to, to know you, to be brought into your family through the gospel. God, we're grateful for Mace and for his baptism today and for the influence of Matt and those guys in his life. And God, I'm thankful for the words of Waymaker, that even when we can't see it, even when we can't feel it, you are indeed working. Our emotions, our perspective does not dictate your character, does not dictate your actions, does not dictate what you are accomplishing in your kingdom and in this world. So God, I pray today that you will use your spirit that we have access to through Christ, and that you will use it to soften our hard hearts, you will use it to give us ears to hear. God, give us ears to listen to you, what you have to say to us. God, and give us the obedience and the mindset to hear from you and to respond. God, to walk away changed. God, we ask you to speak today through your word and through me. It's in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, we're in Ecclesiastes chapter 5, verses 1 through 7. So hopefully you have your Bible, uh, whether on your phone or uh, in person. And let's read that together. I'm going to be reading out of the ESV. Guard your steps when you go to the house of God. To draw near to listen is better than to offer the sacrifice of fools 
for they do not know that they are doing evil. Be not rash with your mouth, nor let your heart be hasty to utter a word before God. For God is in heaven, and you are on earth. Therefore let your words be few. For a dream comes with much business, and a fool's voice with many words. When you vow a vow to God, do not delay in paying it. For he has no pleasure in fools. Pay what you vow. It is better that you should not vow than that you should vow and not pay. Let not your mouth lead you into sin. And do not say before the messenger that it was a mistake. Why should God be angry at your voice and destroy the work of your hands? For when dreams increase and words grow many, there is vanity. But God is the one you must fear. Amen. The word of the Lord. That's our passage for today. And I'm just going to say it. Like from the beginning, it looks strange. Right? We read it one time. It says, like, what does it say about dreams? And what does it say about the Lord is a messenger and I'm, I might lie to them and it might make the Lord angry and like destroy the work that I've done? Like, what is this passage talking about? Well, I think the big overarching view, right, as Matt Perez would say, the big idea is that this passage is about worship. And to put it simply, I think this passage is telling us that how we approach worship matters. How we approach worship matters to God. God cares how we approach worship. And I think why? I think just to answer that on my own question is because how we approach worship is how we approach God. And God cares how we approach him. If you remember the overarching theme of the book of Ecclesiastes, that everything under the sun is meaningless, is empty, right? the author is telling us, the reader, that, hey, worship in its improper form, worshiping God incorrectly, coming into worship in an unacceptable way, is meaningless, is empty. And he even tells us it might have consequences. So that's like the, the big idea, simply put. I think it's helpful for us to look at the structure of this passage. I think it's helpful to see it in four exhortations or admonitions, right? And those words mean uh, to exhort is like to ask you to do something. And to admonish is to tell you not to do something. So he's saying, hey, like, guard your steps when you walk into the house of God. That's his first exhortation. But he says, hey, don't be rash with what you say. Guard your mouth. That's an admonition. Right? So these are the four, I think. Guard your steps. Guard your mouth. Pay what you vow. And he concludes by saying, don't let your mouth lead you into sin. So we can see this as four exhortations and admonitions instead of just kind of this random jumbled passage. I think it will help us break it down together and give us a road map of where we're going to go. So let's do it. Let's just jump in head first. Uh, the first exhortation is verse 1. It says, guard your steps when you go to the house of God. To draw near to listen is better than to offer the sacrifice of fools, for they do not know that they are doing evil. So again, we want to remember that this is the book of Ecclesiastes. It's in the Old Testament, right? The Hebrew Bible, what we call the Old Testament. So obviously, we are not the original reader, right? We're in 2020. We're a long time after this was written. So we read, guard your steps when you go to the house of God. And we might huh, go, huh, I, I wonder why. Like, why should I guard my steps when I go into the house of God? The original audience, right, ancient Israel, would have said, duh, 
guard my steps when I go into the house of God? That's not wisdom. That's common sense. That's common knowledge. Why? Well, the house of God, right, if you just want to take your pen or your pencil and write temple above it or next to it, the house of God equals the temple. Right? This was the place where they would go to gather in corporate worship. Right? They would go to respond to God, respond to God's character, and respond to God's commands that he's asked of them. Right? So they'd go and they would offer vows, they would offer sacrifices, they would do burnt offerings. That, depending on what festival it was or what calendar year it was, they would go to the temple and perform different activities of worship. You know, we know in our 21st century theological minds that God is omnipresent, but for Israel, God's manifested presence was in the temple, right? It started out with a tabernacle, which was portable, and then Solomon brought the, the temple. This was where God's manifested presence was, was for Israel. You know, they had important things there. They went there for worship. It was corporate worship. That's why when Jesus said, hey, actually, my body is the temple, and it's going to be torn down and rebuilt in three days, that's why that matters, right? That's why it's so significant, because that was the place where God was with his people. And so Jesus said, yeah, actually, that's me. And they said, this dude's crazy. How can you rebuild a whole temple in three days? Um, so the first thing that we need to notice about uh, exhortation one, house of God equals temple equals corporate worship for us, right? Guard your steps. What is this, this phrase, guard your steps? Well, the... The literal meaning, you know, the idea is watch your step. Guard your feet. You know, step carefully. And the imagery that we get is, it reminds me of a few things in the Old Testament. If you think about Exodus chapter 3, Moses, right? Moses is Pharaoh's, he's raised as Pharaoh's son. He runs away from Egypt and he's out, you know, tending the sheep in the desert wilderness. As you do in the desert wilderness, you tend sheep and he's walking around and he sees this, there's a bush, over here, and it's on fire. So like most guys would do, go, ooh, something on fire. I'm going to go walk over to that, right? And he walks over to the bush on fire, and he notices it's not being consumed. And as he gets closer, right, he realizes that that's the light. It's really bright. I'm going to go over here. Maybe this should rep represent talking to Yahweh. Uh, Moses comes up to the burning bush, and the voice of Yahweh begins to speak. What is the first thing that he tells Moses? Yeah, you're exactly right. Take off your shoes. Why? Because you're on holy ground. Watch your step. You are treading on holy ground in the presence of God. Right? So when Israel reads, guard your step, they're likely going to remember, oh man, like I need to be careful just like Moses was careful. I need to watch my step when I'm in the presence of God's holiness. Israel would have known that they need to watch their step. Why? Leviticus chapter 10 verse 1 tells us that these two guys walk in to perform worship. You know, they're doing their traditional, like they're just doing their routine of worship, but they don't do it right. Their hearts aren't right. They have selfish motivations and dead. Leviticus chapter 10 verse 1, dead. Right? Leviticus chapter 15 tells us if they walked into the temple, or the tabernacle in Leviticus, but they walk into the temple unclean, dead. So when Israel was reading verse 1, guard your steps, they would know why. 
God's holiness and humanity's unholiness are not compatible. I'm reminded of when the tabernacle, not the tabernacle, sorry, the Ark of the Covenant is on the way back to Israel. The Philistines have captured it, right? It wreaks all kinds of havoc. God does in their camp. So they decide to send the Ark of the Covenant back. So David and his soldiers, they're walking back towards Israel with the Ark of the Covenant on a bumpy road. And the Ark of the Covenant goes to tip over. Well, what does David's soldier do? Obviously, he just puts his hand on it to push it back up. Dead. He's dead. And when I read that the first time, I was like, man, that really stinks. <laughs> like, that's not a great part of the story, God. Like, why'd you have to kill him like that? But if we, if we take a step back from God killed him, and we look at our humanity is not compatible with God's holiness, then we understand why he died. He was struck by the holiness of God, and he could not handle it. So, yeah, whenever Israel reads, guard your step when they go to the house of God, all these things are going to be in their mind. You are exactly right. Of course I need to watch my step when I walk into the house of God. The author supports his exhortation, right, guard your step, with some motivation. He tells us why. To draw near to listen is better than to offer the sacrifice of fools. They do not know that they are doing evil. And we, we need to pay attention here, this, especially the second part of that verse. He's saying, he's not telling us, be wary of worship. He's not saying, be afraid of worship. He's saying, you need to be wary how you approach God in worship. You need to be wary how you conduct yourself in worship. Because it matters. Again, God cares how we approach him in worship. In the second half of verse 1, he says, it's better to listen than to offer the sacrifice of fools, for they don't know they are doing evil. And just to put it frankly, the author is saying, hey, I didn't know is not an excuse. Claiming, I didn't know that that wasn't the right way to do this worship. I didn't know my heart had bad motivations. I didn't know that I was being driven by selfishness or by comfort or by routine. That, that's not my fault. And the author is saying, hey, Ignorance is not an excuse, and that's, that's heavy. That's heavy, right? He's saying we need to be aware how we are entering into worship. The most commonly cross-referenced passage to Ecclesiastes chapter 5, verse 1, is 1 Samuel chapter 15. And if you don't know the story of 1 Samuel, I would highly encourage you to read it. It's an amazing, amazing book that uh, follows the story of Samuel one of Israel's last prophets, into the rise of their first king, Saul, which becomes the rise of King David. And it's this amazing saga weaving back and forth of like lying and deceit and power. And oh, it's, it's, it's incredible. But uh, one of the most tragic passages, I think, in the entire Bible is when Israel, you know, they're, they have God as their king. They're operating with God as their king. And they come to Samuel, the prophet, and they say, hey, we want you to tell God that we looked around and we saw all the other nations have a human king. And so we want to be like them. And like, we know God's our king, like, but we want, a, we want a real king. Like, we want a human king. And so Samuel weeps and mourns, and then he goes to God. He says, hey, God, like, your people want a human king. And he says, tell them, no, they don't. 
because the human king is going to take their sons and they're going to die in war for his battles. The king is going to take their daughters and they're going to be his wives and his concubines and his servants. And he's going to take their food and he's going to take their money as taxes and he's going to take their land as his land. Tell them they do not want a human king. And Samuel goes back to Israel and conveys the message and they say, oh, that sounds pretty good, God, but we still do. We want to be like everyone else. It's tragic. It's a tragedy. So uh, most scholars agree that the reason God chooses Saul to be king is because he's like the people. He's tall, and he's strong, and he's ruddy. Right? He's handsome. And he, he actually like, tries to dodge being king at first. But they bring him up to be king. And like, yeah, God's given us a human king. And he makes some like, good battle decisions towards the beginning. And it seems like everything's going great. And in no time, things start to slide. And he begins to make decisions for himself. And he begins to make decisions that are undermining God's causes, right? And putting his desires on the forefront, which sounds a lot like Israel, which is why he was a good king for them, because he represented them. So chapter 15 comes. Samuel tells Saul, hey, God wants you. There's a king and his people. They are the enemies of God. I want you to destroy them. Go to battle, destroy them, have utter victory, and destroy all their stuff. Their livestock, their land, their property. Offer it all to God. They're God's enemies. Like, just let's rid of the face of the earth with them. Pretty simple. And so Saul goes, and he faces this king in battle. and He has a decisive victory, and they're offering things to God. They're doing what they're supposed to do. And Saul says, hey, some of this stuff is really nice. Some of this, like, gold and livestock and land are really nice. And so he says, we don't have to, we don't have to destroy all of it. Like, we'll just offer part of it back to God, and we'll take the rest, because we're God's people. And, like, surely he wants us to, like, be prosperous. So Saul and his men accumulate what they were supposed to destroy. They come back, and it's one of the most ironic and, like, hilarious but tragic passages in the whole Bible. King Saul goes to Samuel and says, hey, I, I'm back. Like, I did the will of the Lord. I've accomplished the will of the Lord. And Samuel says, hey, tell me about it. Like, tell me about it. And he says, well, we had a battle. Like, we destroyed everything we did. Like, we took stuff. Like, we, we did what we were supposed to do. Like, we pleased God. We did what we were supposed to do. We've done the will of the Lord. And Samuel, you can almost imagine him like leaning in, and he's like, well, what's the, what's the bleeding of sheep that I hear? What's the smell of the livestock that I smell? I could be wrong, but isn't that the king over there that God explicitly told you to kill, and you've brought him back as a political prisoner because you wanted to? And Saul says, well, I did the religious stuff. Like, we offered burnt offerings. We, we gave things back to God. Like, I did my religious duty as king. Surely it's not that big of a deal. This is where we come to 1 Samuel chapter 15, verse 22, which is very, very well known. Let's read it together. Samuel says, Has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, 
and to listen than the fat of rams. Samuel says, you thought that religious activity was enough compared to disobedience and deliberate walking the opposite way of what God's asked you to do. And how does that apply to our passage today? He says, it's better to draw near to listen than to offer the religious sacrifice thinking it's enough, than to do the routine, than to do what I've always done. It's the comparison of religious action versus obedience. He says, it is better to listen than to offer the sacrifice of fools. Now, when we hear the word listen, in English, we kind of have a problem, right? I'll, I'll model this problem for you. I think my wife is watching the live stream now. She will hopefully laugh, not be angry with me. Here, let me give you an example. Right, I'm at home. I'm obviously scrolling through Instagram like one does in your off time. Like, share, comment, subscribe, send to my parents, send to, send to Emory, send to Joe, like, send to Chris. Like, I'm just on social media. And I hear like a voice. Someone's talking to me, I think, but... I'm scrolling through social media. And then I notice the voice stop talking. And that's when my brain goes like, uh-oh. <laughs> and people that laugh, they know. I look over, <laughs> and I see my wife staring at me. And she's like, hey, are you listening to me? I'm like, uh, I heard you. <laughs> I heard words coming towards me, but I was not listening. Oh, I'm seeing some looks go around. Sorry, guys. <laughs> like, I heard words, but I wasn't listening. So we have that dichotomy in English, right? Like, I heard you, but did you listen to me? I was listening, but I didn't really hear you. Hebrew doesn't have that. In Hebrew, the word that he uses in 1 Samuel is listen. In Ecclesiastes, the word is like to heed, to obey. So when Samuel tells Saul it is better to listen than to sacrifice, the, the word listen cannot be separated out into like hearing, but then maybe doing. The word for listen and obey are like the same definition. So when Samuel says it's better to listen than to do sacrifice, listening and obeying are non-separable. So when we hear Deuteronomy chapter 6, it says, hear O, Lord, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. It means hear and be changed, O Israel. The Lord your God is one. Hear and respond. Hear and do. That's why Jesus says over and over and over again, they who have ears, let them hear. Because to truly hear, to truly listen means to do and to go. So when we see that in verse 1, to draw near to listen is better than to offer the sacrifice of fools. The image we get is drawing in, ready to obey. Drawing in, ready to be changed. And so for us, 21st century America, we have to say, this text is telling us that if we draw in and we are not willing to listen, we are not willing to obey, we are not willing to be changed by who God is, what he says, or what he asks of us is sin. If we come into worship unwilling to truly listen, then I would argue it's better for us not to come at all passage tells us that that is sin. And again, he says, ignorance is not an excuse. Let's move on. That was the first exhortation, and it was the weightiest. 
It serves as the foundation as we go forward. Let's read verses 2 and 3. Be not rash with your mouth, nor let your heart be hasty to utter a word before God. For God is in heaven, and you are on earth. Therefore, let your words be few. So again, this time he's giving us an admonition, right? Be not hasty. Don't be in a rush to speak. So this image of the first exhortation is watch your step. When you're coming into worship, be aware of how you are bringing yourself. The second admonition is when you're in worship, don't talk too much. When you get to worship, don't be in a rush to talk too much. What is he saying? He says, watch what you say before God. So before God, like specifically implies prayer, but also can be, you know, kind of just applied to worship. So saying, watch what you say. Be careful not to speak too much before God. I'm reminded of Matthew chapter 6. Jesus says, hey, don't pray like the hypocrites do. Don't pray like the Gentiles do, thinking that you can just heap up empty phrases and just keep praying and praying and praying, thinking that your empty words are going to buy you favor, that God is going to hear you more because you're using more words. Jesus says, no, your Father in heaven already knows what you need before you even ask. So you don't have to pray like that. And then he says, actually, you should pray like this. And he gives us his example of the Lord's Prayer. Don't be in a rush to say so much. Why? He tells us, because God is in heaven and you are on earth. He's saying, don't forget who you're talking to. Don't forget who you're talking to. And this isn't like an intimidation or a fear thing in a negative way. He's saying, hey, it's, it's easy to step into worship, you know, nonchalantly and to go through our routine and just to jump into prayer and jump into worship and not realize that we're talking to the king of the universe. Not realizing that we're talking to the God who sits on the throne of heaven and uses earth as his footrest. Not realizing that we're talking to the God that sent his son to put on flesh to take our sins so we could have his righteousness. Right? We can just get into our routine and forget who we're talking to. And we also, I would say we also often forget that we don't sit on that throne. That I don't have any authority to reign anything. Right? I'm not the king of anything, but oftentimes I think that I am. This uh, admonition, he follows it with his motivation, right? He says, don't be rash with your mouth because God is in heaven and you're not. But then he follows it with a proverb, right? Here he follows it with a proverb that supports his point. Look at the end of, or look at verse three. For a dream comes with much business and a fool's voice with many words. If you have a Bible that has references or footnotes, then yours might say the Hebrew here is unclear. That's okay, right? Like, People kind of go back and forth on what we think this means. I don't know about you. I do not dream very often. Like my wife dreams all the time. So she'll we'll wake up and she'll be like, hey, like, tell me about your dream, because I had a really cool one or a really scary one, and I want to tell you about mine. And I'm like, I dreamed that my alarm went off. And then I woke up. <laughs> I'm super boring. But 
I have noticed in my life that the busier that I am, the more stressed out that I am, the more all over the place my life feels, the more likely that I am to have crazy, anxious, frightening dreams. My, I'm more likely to have weird dreams about work or about my life or about problems I'm trying to solve when I'm constantly dwelling on those things, right? So the verse tells us in verse 3, a dream comes with much business and a fool's voice with many words. So the, the Proverbs point, again, it's confusing, but his point is when you have much business in your life, when you're not grounded, I would say, you have many confusing, frightening dreams. A fool's voice leads to many words, right? Ungrounded life, many dreams. Being a fool, many words. So saying, watch your mouth in worship before God. Be careful what you say. The third exhortation, verses 4 through 5. When you vow a vow to God, do not delay in paying it, for he has no pleasure in fools. Pay what you vow. It is better that you should not vow, and that you should vow and not pay. So far, we've had, when you enter into worship, watch your step. Right? Be careful where you put your feet when you walk into worship. And then we've had, hey, when you're in worship, be careful what you say. Be careful what you say before God in worship. Now we have what you say you're going to do in worship, actually do it. Make sure that you do what you say you're going to do in worship. That's where we get this word vow. A vow is saying, God, if you do this, I will respond with this. God, if you come through in only what you can do, I'll come through with what I can do. An example is 1 Samuel chapter 1. Right? We have Hannah, who's married to her husband. She cannot have children. Her husband has two wives, so the other wife continually gets pregnant and constantly berates her for not being able to get pregnant, which is, like, not cool. So Hannah is obviously upset. Hannah goes to the temple and says, hey, God, if you will allow me to have a son, I will give him back to you. Right? That's her vow. God, if you do what only you can do and allow me to have a son, I will respond and give him back to you. She gets pregnant, names him Samuel, gives him back to the temple, right? That becomes Samuel. I do want to warn us really quick. Judges chapter 11 tells us a tragic story. Just because you're making a promise to God does not mean it pleases him. Just because you're making a vow to the Lord does not mean it's something that he wanted you to vow at all. Deuteronomy chapter 23 tells us you don't have to make a vow. It says, hey, if you make a vow, make sure you fulfill it. But it is not sin to not vow. Judges 11, this guy, Jephthah, they're facing a tough battle. And he says, hey, God, like, I really, really need you to come through. So uh, if we win, then whoever or whatever comes out of my house when I get home, I'll offer it to you as a sacrifice. It's like, wait, what? There's nowhere anywhere in the Old Testament that says, like, that is any kind of realistic, reasonable vow to ever make. They go fight the battle, they win, and Jephthah's only daughter is the first one to walk out of the house. And he goes through with the vow. 
There's nothing in the Bible that would give us any idea that that pleases God. We know beyond a shadow of a doubt that that makes God furious. That's not what God wants. If you look at the nations around Israel at that time, then that would be more expected of them. So again, just because you're making a promise or a vow to God does not mean it pleases God. An example of making a vow and then turning from it almost as quick as you can make it is uh, Exodus chapter 24. In Exodus 24, this is after Israel comes out of Egypt. Right? They're being led by Moses. And they're getting ready to receive the Ten Commandments. They're getting ready to receive God's covenant. Let's read this together, Exodus 24. Moses came and told all the people all the words of the Lord and all the rules. Right? So Moses has heard from God. Here's the expectations for the covenant. All the people answered with one voice and said, all the words that the Lord has spoken, we will do. All the words the Lord has spoken, we will do. Now, if you know anything about Israel, it's hard not to laugh. So Moses hears their, you know, he tells God, hey, the people have agreed to their end of the covenant, to their end of the agreement. So Moses and Joshua go up Mount Sinai. Joshua stays with Moses' stuff, I presume, and Moses is up in the cloud with God for 40 days-ish, right, roughly 40 days. Well, keep that in mind, like barely a month, Exodus 32. The chapter's in between, like, the covenant that God gives Moses. Chapter 32, when the people saw Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, they gathered themselves together to Aaron and said to him, Up, make us gods who shall go before us. And for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we don't know what happened to him. He's probably dead. Moses is probably dead. It's been like 30, 40 days. Hey, let's make some idols. Let's make gods that we can see. Because who knows about that God that we can't see? Who knows about that covenant? Let's make a God that we can control. And so Aaron, you probably know the story, Aaron gathers their jewelry that they had been given as gifts by Egypt when God delivered them, which is like super ironic, right? They melt it down and form a golden calf, and they perform sacrifices to the Lord in front of this idol. It is bizarre. And Moses comes back and says, what have you done? And Aaron says, oh, we threw all the gold in the fire and a calf popped out. <laughs> and we see how quickly the nation of Israel, now don't forget, like, has just been delivered from Egypt and has just, like, seen the Red Sea split and literally just heard the word of the Lord, here's my covenant, do you agree to it? And they respond with, we will do everything the Lord has said. Not 40 days go by. And they say, eh, let's do our own thing. Why? I think it's because they forgot who God is. They forgot the character of God. They forgot that he delivered them. They forgot that he ransomed them, that he sent Moses to set them free from Pharaoh. And they returned back to the gods that they knew from Egypt. Right? They could see those idols. They could control them. They could touch them. Those idols didn't have expectations. They didn't have a covenant. They didn't care how I live my life. And so how quickly do we, right, as we read this passage, how quickly 
Do we forget the vows that we have made to God? How quickly do we forget his goodness and his character and what he's done in our life? And we turn back to the things we once knew. We turn back to the sin. We turn back to the idols that we can control, right? I don't know what it is for you. Finances or life plans or things in your life that you have control over. But we so quickly turn back to them and we forget who God is. His final exhortation, verse 6. Let not your mouth lead you into sin. Do not say before the messenger it was a mistake. Why should God be angry at your voice and destroy the work of your hands? This is his final admonition. He's saying, do not let your mouth lead you into sin. Right? It connects back to point two. He's saying, be careful with your words. Now he's saying, don't let your words take you into sin. But then he adds this kind of confusing thing. What does he say? He says, don't say before the messenger it was a mistake. Why, would, why should God be angry at your voice and destroy the work of your hands? There's kind of two schools of thought on this translation. The first one is what some people translate it as temple messenger. Don't say before the temple messenger it was a mistake. And the image that we get, that we know is, it would be like if we were in worship today, right, in our temple, right, in corporate worship, and we made public declarations of what we are going to do. I'm going to give 20% of my salary this year. Or I'm going to come out on Saturday and clean the temple. Or I'm going to do X, Y, and Z, making public vows in public worship. Well, we go, and we go to lunch, and it's really good, and take an afternoon nap because you're tired. And, you know, you wake up from the afternoon nap, you're like, oh, man, like, maybe I, maybe I spoke too quick. Maybe I spoke too soon. Like, maybe 20% of my salary was way too much. I think I'll just do 10 or I, I don't think I can actually make it this Saturday. Right? These are just obviously hypothetical examples. Monday morning, you get a knock at your door, and it's the temple messenger. You say, hey, I was there yesterday when you publicly declared to donate 20% of your salary this year. So, like, we're here to you know, take the check. And looking at the temple messenger and say, oh, it was a mistake. He says, don't look at the messenger and say, whoa, that's a mistake. Like, you have the wrong Colin Denton who lives at this exact address. You have the wrong guy, or it wasn't that amount. That's one school of thought. It's essentially, this has a negative connotation, but it's like the Thai police, right? They came to collect on your public vow. He says, hey, don't do that. Don't make a public vow for your own pride and your own, like, personal status being updated and then not come through with it. It's like, that's bad news. Why would you want the Lord angry with what you're doing? The other idea for translation is the word messenger literally means angel. The word angel means messenger from God. And so all of that should be like multiplied, right? Like why would you make a public vow and then the angel shows up on your doorway to like ask you for what you vowed? Like don't lie. If that ever happens to you, don't lie to the angel because that's going to be bad. That would be a bad choice for you. Don't use public declarations of obedience to boost your pride. Obviously, that does not please the Lord. Verse 7, his conclusion. When dreams increase and words grow many, there is vanity. But God is the one that you must fear. This wraps up 
this section. Right? Again, think back to verse 3. When dreams increase, when words are many, it's vanity, it's empty, it's meaningless, it's a vapor. But God is the one you must fear. Why? Again, God is the one we must fear because he is in heaven and we're not. And to fear God is to remember who God is. Remember that he's God and we're not and that he rules over heaven and earth and we do not. He's concluding this uh, segment, this section, by saying, don't forget who God is. When you come into worship, watch your step. Don't speak just for speaking's sake. And what you do say you're going to do, make sure you come through on it. Because don't forget who God is. And the way that we come to worship reflects our heart attitude and our thoughts of who God actually is. Right? That's the bigger theme of this passage. How we come into worship addresses the, it shows the truth of who we think God is. And this passage is saying who we think God is and how we respond to that in worship is important. What does this have to do with us? In 21st century, 2020, one scholar says this writer's target is the well-meaning person who likes a good sing and turns up cheerfully enough to church, but who listens with half an ear and never quite gets around to what he's volunteered to do for God. There's a real reality that we need to have a heart check. What is my heart attitude like when I step into worship? Am I doing routine, right, like, like Saul? Am I doing religious routine for the sake of routine? Or am I listening Am I obeying? Am I being changed? I need to guard my words. I need to guard my promises. These are real realities that we need to take from this passage. But I do think that this passage makes Christ even sweeter. I think this kind of strange passage in a kind of strange book written a long time ago, I think it makes Jesus even sweeter. Let me tell you why I think that. We need to guard our step in worship, right? That was the first exhortation. We need to guard our step in worship. But Hebrews chapter 2 verse 12 tells us that Jesus' worship was perfect. Jesus was the perfect worshiper of God. His entire life was pleasing worship to God. And Hebrews 2 tells us that that worship gets applied to us. Jesus being the perfect worshiper gets transcribed, transmuted to us. So now we do not have to come into worship every single week with this burden or fear that I'm not going to worship correctly. And that might might be it. I don't have to live under this weight of getting everything right in worship or else I'm going to lose it all. Jesus accomplished a life of perfect worship and he offers that to us in the gospel. Now, that shouldn't make our worship more casual. It shouldn't make our worship less engaging. It should make our worship even more engaging, right? Because we don't have that pressure. We don't have the weight of getting every single thing right or else. Jesus offers us the ability to worship in freedom, in spirit, and in truth. Jesus was the perfect worshiper. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 12. We read that we need to guard our step because God is in heaven and we are on earth. Hebrews chapter 4 tells us 
that Jesus came through the heavens to reach us, to be our great high priest, to be our intercessor, right? So Jesus was with God, came to earth, obviously to draw us to himself, to be the God-man, to be the Messiah, to offer us salvation in himself, to be reconciled back to God. So when we read God is in heaven and we are on earth, yes, that is true. But we should not forget that God left heaven to come to earth as Jesus, to reconcile us to himself. And he offers us a seat with his Father in heaven. That should make us worship. Yes, we need to guard our promises and guard our vows, but we need to remember that Jesus fulfilled every promise and every vow that he ever made. Jesus accomplished every word that he ever said he was going to accomplish. And again, his life of perfect, pleasing obedience to the Father gets applied to us in the gospel. We don't have to live in fear that we won't be enough or that we won't meet a certain standard or else we won't get in or we won't please God. Now, does that mean God doesn't have hopes for our life? Absolutely not. It means you are free to pursue God's hope for your life without fear of blowing it all. God's approval of Jesus' life gets applied to us in the gospel. So my friends, I hope that today, I hope that we don't walk away saying that we're more, more afraid to step into worship, hesitant to step into worship. Yes, the, the truths that we looked at in Ecclesiastes 5 are, are real. We need to ask ourselves, what is my heart like? And why am I saying the things that I'm saying? And why am I promising the things that I'm promising? Those are realities. But the bigger reality is that in Christ, we have the freedom to approach God in worship without fear. Without fear of saying the wrong thing or doing the wrong thing, and that's it. I pray that that truth about who Jesus is will spur our hearts on to worship even more after reading Ecclesiastes chapter 5. Let's pray together. Jesus, we are so grateful for your work. So grateful for your character. So grateful for who you are to us. That while we were far from you, while we were separated from the Father, you saw fit to bear our sin, to become our sin, to offer us your righteousness, to offer us your seat with the Father. We don't deserve it. We continually don't deserve it but it pleases you. I pray that that truth will spur our hearts to worship, that we might respond not just by saying we're listening, but by living a life of lived obedience. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen. Hebrews 4 tells us, since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens. Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. I pray that as we meditate on the truth of who Jesus is, that he allows us to be able to walk before the throne of God in confidence that would spur our hearts to worship and obedience this week. 
Love you, church. In Jesus' name.